Good morning. This morning we're going to talk about uh, a rather unique book of the Bible and a rather unique person, uh, Jonah. I've called it uh, Jonah the Bizarro Prophet, and we will uh, talk about that title a little bit more here in just a minute. But before we get to Jonah, there's two passages I want us to spend a minute thinking about. Uh, I think they are an excellent introduction to what the, the main point of the book of Jonah is going to be and some of the major themes that we see in the book of Jonah. One of them comes from Exodus chapter 34. This is a passage that you'll hear me, if you listen to me preach uh, with any regularity, uh, you'll hear me go back to this one a lot. I think it is foundational to the portrait of God that we should keep in our minds uh, throughout the Bible. Certainly uh, throughout the Old Testament, it is one of the most quoted and referred to passages. It pops up over and over and over again. And this is a passage where God describes himself. And that's one of the things that's unique about it. There are many passages, there's many you know, psalms and, and, and uh, declarations and prayers where people describe God. But here in Exodus chapter 34, after freeing the people from slavery, after entering into covenant with them at Sinai, God is going to describe himself. This is the way that God wants us to think about him. This is the way that God wanted Israel to think about him. Setting the stage for this monumental self-description is God has freed the children of Israel from slavery. He's provided for them incredibly through the wilderness. He has gone to Sinai and entered into covenant with them. Foundational to that covenant is them saying, we will honor you, God. We will obey you. You will be our God. We will be your people. We want to do everything that you have said. We will obey your Torah. And foundational to the Torah is have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images or any idols. They agreed to that. That was like rule one and two was that, sole commitment to God, and they were going to have this wonderful, beautiful relationship. Well, like seven minutes later, it's a little bit more than that, but not very, if you're reading, it feels like that. Uh, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and the children of Israel, they make a different God. And they rewrite their whole story and say, this is our God that led us out of Egypt. And they start worshiping that God instead. They make a golden calf with Aaron, the very brother of Moses, being the sculptor of it. It's this incredible act of betrayal that starts right at the very beginning of their relationship. Now, God very reasonably could say, okay, uh, if that's how you want it to be, then let, let that golden idol be your God. I'll go save a different people. I'll go redeem a different people. I'll go call another people by my name. I'll go be their God, and I'll enter into covenant with them. He could choose Moses. In fact, he actually mentions this possibility. He says, you know what, Moses? You're faithful. How about you, you have yourself some kids, and I'll choose your family, and, and I'll, I'll bless you and multiply you greatly, and I'll be your God, and we can have this unique relationship. You know, God had options, right? He, he, wasn't, he didn't have to be stuck to Israel. He could have chosen from anywhere else. But Moses and God talk about it, and God's going to stick with Israel. In fact, the story of the Old Testament, I think, could be summed up by saying, God relentlessly sticks with Israel. Even when Israel continually turns against him, even when Israel is unfaithful, is idolatrous, engages in some of the worst things you can imagine, God is still their God. And he hasn't given up on them. In fact, even in the New Testament, 
Paul is pretty clear that God has not forsaken or abandoned Israel. Rather, what he's done is he's expanded Israel to include more, to include even the Gentiles to be welcomed into this covenant family of God that are the new Israel. But as you read through, like, God is tenaciously loving. And so as the foundation of the way Israel should view him, rather than, rather than abandoning the covenant, God forgives them. God enters into the covenant again with them. He rewrites the Ten Commandments. He, like, he just does it over, and he forgives them. Why would he do that? It's because of this description. This is who God is, and this is how he wants us to think about him. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, that word loving kindness right there, I like the translation of steadfast love or covenant love. It is an enduring, committed love that God has for his people. And he says he is abounding in that and truth. Then notice verse 7. He keeps that steadfast, committed love for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then it ends in this way. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth. All right, so what does that mean? Well, there, there's, there's a ton you can dive into right there. But basically, the, the main takeaway is that God is gracious and compassionate, and he has more committed, steadfast love than you could ever imagine. He is abounding in that, and truth. And because of that, he forgives. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And he does that over and over. In fact, he does it to the thousands. One of the, the little things that our translations do that doesn't help us out very much, this is what my translation does. It says in verse 7, he keeps loving kindness for thousands. And then at the very end, it says, to the third and fourth generation. Um, there are two different sets of numbers there. There's thousands, like multiple thousands, and there's third and fourth, three and four. All right. My translation adds the word generations to one of them, which is not original, uh, but it doesn't add it to the other one. I think if you're going to add the word generations, it's not in the Hebrew, uh, and so, so it's an English edition, I think you should say he maintains a steadfast love for thousands of generations in punishment to three or four. The whole idea of it, we sometimes get, get caught up in trying to figure out, well, does he punish kids for the sins of their parents and all that stuff? The main idea of this text is that God's loving kindness is huge and big and lasts forever and ever and ever, and his anger is relatively short-lived. Even when God punishes, he doesn't punish forever. In fact, later on, I mentioned that this passage gets quoted over and over and over again. That final phrase eventually in the quotations kind of gets left out. We'll see this here in just a minute. And it generally is then quoted as, he maintains steadfast love for thousands, and is, uh, he uh, does not remain angry forever, or he relents concerning calamity or iniquity. The idea is that God's love, you can always count on it, but his anger, it's pretty short-lived. He's slow to anger, and it doesn't last long. And that's a really remarkable thing to say about God, because that's often not the idea that we have about God. Often our idea about God is he's like, either 50% mercy, 50% wrath, and uh, you got to hope you find him on a good day. You know, and even that, it's like most of the time he's kind of wrath because most of the time I'm kind of wrong. And so we view God as like, I mean, always kind of against us. And it's a very unhealthy attitude. And right at the foundation, that is the attitude that God wants to eliminate in Israel. 
His steadfast love is for thousands of thousands. And his anger and his punishment is to the third and fourth. Uh, and, and so compare those numbers and you get a good idea of what ratio we should be thinking here when it comes to God's, God's loving kindness. Uh, and, and so that's a really powerful and rewarding and, and, and encouraging passage. It's a passage that, as you reflect upon it, should hopefully give you, uh, give you hope, give you uh, confidence in your walk with God. But also it's a passage that could bring up some questions. Um, Okay, if that's really the case, what about people who, like, are really, truly awful humans? Like, I can look at myself, and, you know, we always kind of give ourselves a pass. Like, you know, I, I might have been rude on the subway that day, but I'm not a rude person. You know, I just, that was, I was, that was an off day. Um, we sometimes, like, if we do something wrong, it's outside of our character. What's interesting is if you meet a person on the subway and they're rude, you think, well, that's a rude person. Uh, I don't know why I'm talking about subways, because we don't live near subways, but that's just the illustration that popped into my head. But, uh, but what often happens is, like, we will define people by the brief moment we have with them as though that's all of who they are, but we have a much more nuanced view of ourselves. It's like, well, I'm an entire complicated person. I have my ups and my downs. This person is just awful. Um, God is loving, he is full of loving kindness and steadfast love, but what about those people who actually are our enemies? What about those people who truly are bad people, who've done pretty heinous things? Does God still have steadfast love for them? What about those countries, those nations, who are constantly, seemingly opposed to the will of God, who as a nation have engaged in, in horrible things? Does God still have steadfast love? Those types of questions can be difficult uh, to, to grapple with. Thankfully, there's a book in the Bible that I think delves into that very question right there. To what extent does this description of God apply? And I think what will often happen is we will want to limit this description of God just to the people and to the areas that we feel most comfortable with. And what the Bible is going to do is it's going to try to make us uncomfortable by expanding this definition of God, by widening that circle of God's love beyond what we would want it to be and beyond what often makes us comfortable. Jonah's a prophet who's well aware of this description of God. In fact, he's going to quote this very description of God. And he's wanting that description to include this people. And what God is going to do is he's going to make it include all of these people. Uh, it's going to get uncomfortable for Jonah really quickly. Another passage that I think is helpful for understanding the, the book of Jonah comes from 2 Kings. So now uh, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 14. And this is our description of Jonah. Uh, outside of the prophet, you know, so the way the Bible's written, you have these minor prophets and these major prophets, and they are, like, usually written under someone's name, like Isaiah or Ezekiel or uh, Amos, Hosea, Joel, you know, like, you have these different names, but these people, you can usually find where they fit into the history of Israel, which will be your first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Well, Jonah, we can find where he fits in to the book of, of Kings, and it's second Kings chapter 14. We get a little description of him. In verse 23 and following, I'm in 1 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, notice what it says about, about uh, uh, Jonah and who is king during the life of Jonah. Verse 23 says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, 
became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. That's a long reign. Uh, So Israel gets a new king. This is wicked Israel. This is Israel to the north. This is Israel with two golden altars in Bethel and Dan, where they're not supposed to go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore because now they have different gods that that have, have freed them. This is idolatrous Israel, and they have a new king. And do you think he's a good king? His name is Jeroboam. That should be a clue because the first Jeroboam was not a good guy. He's the guy who built those altars and said, don't go down to the temple in Jerusalem anymore. I want you to, I want to consolidate power up here. Here we have a second Jeroboam who's going to act very similarly. And so when you get to verse uh, 24, this is the description of Jeroboam. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, it gets confusing because they're both named Jeroboam. But, uh, but you have Jeroboam the first, and he was horrible, and now you have Jeroboam the second, who's also horrible, and he walks in all the ways of Jeroboam the first. And so he says he didn't depart from the sins of the first Jeroboam, and he acted just like him, and he made Israel sin in verse 24. So what do you think God's going to do to Israel? If you have a king who's wicked and who acts just like wicked kings before him, and he keeps up these these pagan idols and he's he's awful, what are you going to do with that king? Well, look at verse 25. And he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Imatai, the prophet uh, who was of Gath-Hefer. So here's what you end up seeing happen. God blesses Israel even during the reign of this wicked king, and he restores their borders and expands their kingdom. You can keep reading. Verse 26, it says, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. It's like Israel's sinful and their king is wicked, yet God sees their affliction and still cares about them. And God still blesses them. And God still expands their border. And you think, that's not what I expected. I expected it to say he was evil, so God cursed Israel and a foreign nation destroyed them. But no, like, God is blessing Israel even though they're wicked. And then you read verse 27. It says, the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. Why do you think that is? Maybe because he's full of steadfast love. Uh, He did not blot out their name from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash, and Jeroboam's wicked. (laughs) So like wicked Israel with their wicked king, God sees their affliction and cares for them, saves them, and restores their border. And you think, that's not how I expected the story to go at all. Who was the prophet behind all of this? Who was preaching this message? Jonah. You know what that tells me about Jonah? Jonah's perfectly comfortable with preaching a positive message to a wicked people, provided that people is Israel. He will preach a message of restored borders and salvation from God to Israel, even though they're wicked, and even though they have a wicked king. I think that might be because Jonah loves Israel. That's a good introduction to the book of Jonah, because you're going to find something out about Jonah uh, when you get to the book. So turn with me now to the minor prophet Jonah, and we are going to begin to look at the bizarro prophet. Um, The bizarro world— I'm not a comic book guy. I think it's a place in in DC comics uh, where like the world is a cube and basically everything in that world is the opposite of reality that we come to expect. I know about Bizarro World mostly from a particular episode of Seinfeld, not from uh, the comics, but uh, I've heard of it and I think it fits in in the book of Jonah for a couple of reasons. Um, 
We're going to play a little game. I guess I'm going to play a little game in front of you, but we're going to play a little game. Uh, it's called Profit or Pagan. And I'm going to say something, and you have to think, well, whether that happened to the prophet or the pagan. And uh, in the book of Jonah, I think what you'll see is every answer that you would ordinarily assume prophet ends up being pagan. And every answer that you would ordinarily assume pagan ends up being prophet. So let's ask the question, uh, in the book of Jonah, who disobeys God, prophet or pagan? The exception, the, the expectation, you know, it would be that the, the prophet's the one who obeys and the pagan's the one who disobey God. What's fascinating about Jonah is the prophet Jonah in this book is the only one who disobeys God. I'm talking like not even just the pagans. He meets some pagans on a boat who ends up sacrificing to God and honoring God and, and worshiping him, and they fear the Lord. He meets some pagans in Nineveh who repent in sackcloth and ashes and in these incredible ways. Uh, there's a fish that obeys God. There's a tree that obeys God. There's a wind that obeys God. There's a storm that obeys God. There's a, a, a worm that obeys God. It's like everything in Jonah obeys God. Who, who, who fasts? And, and puts on sackcloth uh, during a time of repentance in Nineveh, the king, the nobles, the regular people, the impoverished people, the animals, like everyone does. Jonah is the most uh, vivid depiction of like mass repentance you could ever possibly conceive. Jonah doesn't do anything small. It's not like people repented a little bit. They repent in the biggest way you possibly can. In fact, one of the ways you can tell Jonah doesn't do anything small is by looking at some of the key words in Jonah. Um, Nineveh, in chapter 1 and verse 2, is described as the great city. It's not just a city. It's a great city. Um, verse 10, when the men on the boat with Jonah get afraid, they become greatly afraid. Not just afraid, but greatly afraid. Uh, why? Because in verse 12, if you look at the end of it, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. It's not just a storm. It's a great storm. Verse 16 of chapter 1, the men on the boat, they feared the Lord greatly. They didn't just fear him. They feared him greatly. Look at verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Not just a fish, a great fish. And as you do this, you can, you'll end up seeing that the word great or greatly appears over and over and over. The, the city of Nineveh is repeatedly called the great city. When Jonah gets upset, uh, or when the people repent, the greatest, all the way down to the least, uh, repent. When Jonah gets mad in chapter 4, it says, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. You can uh, read through this, and what you'll see is that when Jonah gets that tree, he doesn't just become happy that he's in the shade. He's greatly happy. Like, Jonah wants to take every single thing to the max. So you're going to see repentance from kings all the way down to animals and all of that. You're going to see obedience from every single thing except this one prophet, Jonah. So prophet or pagan, uh, the pagans are the one who obey and the prophet's the one who doesn't. Um, who repents of sin? I've already mentioned it a little bit, but uh, you know, Jonah sins and the people sin. But you know what's interesting? We get some incredible descriptions of the repentance of the, the pagan people in the book of Jonah. We don't actually ever get to see Jonah repent. Maybe he does. Maybe after the book is, is finished, Jonah has a, you know, a change of heart or something. But from chapter 1 through chapter 4, Jonah seems to have the exact same heart. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, Jonah did repent. Because at the very beginning, he's told to go to Nineveh and to preach to them. And instead of going, he hops a boat and he tries to go the other way. 
then he has the storm, then he gets swallowed by the fish, then he gets vomited, then he uh, ends up going. So maybe after he ends up going, that was an act of repentance. I don't think so. Um, I think it's possible to change your actions without ever repenting. Here's what I mean. If you take someone who steals, and they love stealing, and they want to steal, and they're always planning on stealing, and you lock them in a room where there's nothing to steal for 10 years, they might not steal for 10 years. And then they get out, and they're like, yes, I can finally get back to stealing. Like, you have changed their action, but they did not repent. They are still wanting to do that same thing. Jonah, he got swallowed by a fish and thrown up on the shore. Like, like, I think he realized, okay, I got to go to the city. I'm not getting away here. That was kind of weird. And so Jonah knows that he can't not preach to Nineveh. He has to do it. But he still doesn't want to. He still doesn't want them to be forgiven. Like, I have often heard, and this is is a misunderstanding of the book of Jonah, that because Nineveh, the, the, the city in Assyria, the great city, was so wicked and vile and violent, that Jonah was terrified to go there. And so to save his life, he fled and went a different direction. That is not Jonah's problem with Nineveh. He is not afraid to die. Read every chapter and you'll find out Jonah's not afraid to die. He says, throw me overboard and kill me. Uh, he, he, after Nineveh repents and he's sitting up on the hill, he, he wants God to kill him because he's so mad. And then when he loses his shade tree, he wants God to kill him again, which, come on, Jonah. <laughs> you know, it's like just a little heat. Uh, but, but you read through it and like Jonah is... Death isn't his fear. He would rather die than go and preach to Nineveh. He has another concern, and the concern is that he hates the people of Nineveh. He hates them. They are his national enemies. He's very patriotic towards Israel. He loves Israel. He'll preach a wonderful message to a wicked Israel about their salvation and borders being restored, even though they're wicked. But he hates Nineveh so much, he wants to see them destroyed. And he knows He knows that God is merciful and compassionate, is slow to anger, is abounding in loving kindness. And I think he also knows that God's going to extend that to more people than Jonah wants him to. God's going to extend that even all the way to Nineveh. And he does not want that to happen. And so he will do everything possible. So before he preaches there, he does not want them to repent and be saved. And after he preaches there, He does not want them to repent and be saved. Because as soon as they do repent, he crosses his arms and he gets mad at God. And he says, God, this is your fault. I told you this would happen. I didn't want this to happen. And so like all the way through, Jonah's anti their salvation. He never repents. The people of Nineveh, the sailors on the boat, however, seem to repent quite a bit. In fact, when you look at uh, Jonah chapter 1, just notice this transition that takes place among the the sailors on the boat. Chapter 1 and verse 5 It says, then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten uh, lighten it for them. All right, so at the beginning, they're all praying to their own gods, and they're terrified. Notice how uh, it ends in verse 16. The men on the boat, then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They transition in this story from being terrified for their own lives and praying to their gods to now having fear for the Lord and reverencing and worshiping and sacrificing to him. Like, that's a change. Jonah, even that prayer, remember that prayer that Jonah prays in the belly of the fish? You might say, well, that's, an, that's repentance on Jonah's part. Read the prayer. 
you'll notice there are some things conspicuously absent. Uh, Jonah never says something like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Let me go do the right thing now. Instead, Jonah does thank God for God's salvation, that God saved him. Like, that, that's kind of what the prayer is about. God, you saved me. You rescued me from the deep. You, you pulled me out of the pits of Sheol. You've rescued me from the pit. Like, all of that, Jonah's a big fan of being saved. But even the one time he mentions uh, pagans, notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse 8. Those who regard vain idols, this is in the middle of his prayer. <laughs> Those who regard vain idols, they forsake their faithfulness, is what mine says. But you know what that word actually is? It's used two times in the book of Jonah. It is that key word from Exodus 34, your steadfast love, your loving kindness. And what he's saying is, those who regard vain idols, they forsake the opportunity to have your loving kindness. Like, that's absent to them. That's his whole point. So like Jonah, even as he's in the belly of the fish, can't help but discuss how much he hates those idol-worshiping Ninevites. Uh, and so Jonah never seems to come to like them. Uh, question number three, prophet or pagan, who fears the Lord God and worships? Well, if you read through the book, you'll see that it's not the prophet. You don't see him fearing God. He, he at one point says that he fears God, but it becomes very obvious that he, he doesn't all that much. Uh, and he's not the one who offers sacrifice and worships, but those pagans who are on the boat and those pagans who are in Nineveh, they sure do. Um, who treats God like a localized idol that you can run away from? That's not the pagans. They, when they hear that the Lord God of Israel, the one who created heavens and the earth, is the one who's after Jonah, they become terrified because they know there's no getting away from him. Jonah, notice verse 3 of chapter 1. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then notice how that ends. Uh, he paid the fare and went down uh, in, uh, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And like the introduction, you have this repetition of the phrase, away from the presence of the Lord, as though the Lord's kind of stuck in Israel. And if he can get to Tarshish, whew, he got away. Um, Jonah seems to think that God is like one of these localized deities that the Ninevites would worship. And, and so what you have here is those who are from foreign places, they respect that the God of Israel can be with them as much as anywhere else. They seem to have a globalized view of God. Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, who knows in his head that God is the creator of all, ends up being the one who thinks that he can escape from him and uh, depart from the presence of the Lord. Um, who respects human life in the book of Jonah? You know, Jonah wants to see everyone from Nineveh killed. Jonah wants himself to be killed. But the people on the boat, the pagans who are with Jonah, even when they know that Jonah's the problem, even when they know that uh, Jonah's saying, throw me overboard, because that's how you'll solve the storm, they still try to get rid of, they, they undergo extreme financial loss. They throw all of their stuff overboard in hopes of saving the life of the prophet who is dooming them all. So it's like, imagine the role reversal here. Jonah is supposed to be the prophet of the God of steadfast love, and he wants the people who haven't really done much to him to be destroyed. The people on the boat who are, their life is on the line because of Jonah's actions, 
they're still risking their life, losing their money in order to save Jonah. So like they were going out on this ship probably with the hopes of, of trading and making some money. They lost any opportunity of this being a successful venture and they're still trying to save Jonah's life. Then eventually they do agree to throw him overboard, but look at what they say. Verse 14 of chapter 1. Then they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Notice, like they're doing this and they're praying for God to not be upset with them. The prophet and the pagan have reversed roles in the most extreme ways in, in the book of Jonah. Uh, here's another one. It's kind of an interesting one. Who gets the future wrong in the book of Jonah? The prophet or the pagans? Uh, Jonah has one line that he offers as a word to Nineveh. He, he flees. He's thrown overboard. He's swallowed. He's vomited. He makes his way back to Nineveh, and we're finally going to get to hear his sermon. And you know what it says? Uh, chapter 3 in verse 4. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's it. That's, that's the only thing that's recorded about his message. Compare that to, like, the book of Isaiah. <laughs> and you see how many words Isaiah uses trying to get people to repent and to turn back to God. That's what Jonah says. You know some things that are kind of missing from that? He doesn't even mention the word repentance. He doesn't tell them to repent. He just says, 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And you know what's fascinating? 40 days later, Nineveh was not overthrown. Um, kind of. So here's something that's really fascinating about that one prophecy right there. That word overthrown, it literally means like turned over. So when Jonah says that, and when the people of Nineveh hear it, they are thinking, oh, in 40 days, we're going to be absolutely destroyed. So we need to do something. Uh, when you look at chapter 2 and verse 9, this is what the people of Nineveh are thinking. Sorry, chapter 3 and verse 9. This is what the people of Nineveh are thinking. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Maybe God won't stay angry forever. Maybe he'll relent concerning calamity. That, that, that's what they're thinking. Um, but notice they hear Jonah's message and they think 40 days, we're, God's going to destroy us, so we need to repent. But that word overthrown or turned over also does have a different meaning. If you look it up, one of the other potential meanings is the word repent, <laughs> like to turn something over. And so there's a sense in which in 40 days you can take this two ways. And I think that that's an intentional play on words so that from God's perspective, the prophecy is true. In 40 days, Nineveh was completely overturned. They were a completely different people. They, were, they had turned everything about themselves. Uh, if you look at uh, verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, Both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth. This is Nineveh's repentance that each may turn from his wicked way uh, and from the violence which is in his hand. Nineveh is turning. <laughs> Nineveh is very much being overturned right now, uh, but it's not in the way that Jonah or they are thinking. So it's a prophecy that taken one way fails. A prophecy that taken another way is true that no one could have expected ever in a million years. Uh, all of this is Jonah's satire showing us that the prophet of God a prophet of Israel is the opposite of everything he could be, and these pagan, hated enemies of the people end up being the righteous example in the book of Jonah. He turns everything upside down. There's a lot of lessons, I think, that could be learned from the book of Jonah. Um, we'll end with three of them. Um, one of them 
is that righteousness isn't always found in the obvious place. Um, when Jesus is walking the streets of Israel, he says that if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you guys are seeing, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. The idea is that even Sodom and Gomorrah is more righteous than Israel in the days of Jesus. Or when Jesus tells the Pharisees that the tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom before you, sometimes righteousness is found in the least expected places ever. If you're looking for righteousness in the book of Jonah, don't look to God's prophet. You look to the pagans. You look to the people of Nineveh. You look to the people on the boat. That's where you're going to find the example of who God wants us to be. Uh, sometimes we can, and this, as a preacher, this, I have, this is going to go against uh, my own personal interests, I guess, but don't always look to the preacher to be the example of righteousness. He might be the one who's supposed to look righteous, but a lot of times you'll find that righteousness comes in the least expected places. Maybe you can find it uh, in, in, in sources that you would l expect uh, a whole lot less. Uh, and so there are, there are a lot of examples of this in the Bible, and I think Jonah makes a whole book out of it, uh, trying to shock you with where righteousness is found. Number two, the future's not always set in stone. That's actually a really important message, uh, especially for Israel. Because remember, this is a book. This isn't like a prophecy that got sent to Nineveh. This is, a, this is Israel's book and Israel's Bible. This is a message for Israel. What do you think Israel can learn from this message? Well, remember, Israel had some other prophets roaming around at this time. You got a guy named Amos. You got a, name, a guy named Hosea. They're prophesying against northern Israel, saying, hey, you know things look really good right now in the time of Jeroboam, but your righteousness is so lacking that it won't last forever. You will end up facing destruction. And I think this book is a message that's saying, if Nineveh, these wicked enemies of the people, can repent and God forgive them and change their future, do you not think he can do the same for you? It's a message to Israel that they still have a chance right now to turn things around and to repent, and God is calling upon them to do so. So Nineveh, in a lot of ways, is an illustration of what Israel should be doing. And if Nineveh can avoid destruction, then surely Israel can as well. Uh, and finally, God is absolutely amazing, and his love is far greater than we, I think, could possibly imagine. Um, it's not limited by borders or nationality. It certainly isn't dependent upon race. It doesn't have a lot of the barriers that we sometimes add to uh, our views of love. God even loves the pagans, and he even loves the pagans' animals. Uh, you know, when you read through Jonah, animals actually become an important part of it. In chapter 4, Jonah preaches, the people repent, and Jonah's furious. He's so mad about that. And he complains to God. In, in chapter 4 and verse 2, this is what he says. He says, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to keep this from happening, in order to forestall you forgiving them, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew, and just the tone, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. That's Exodus 34. He's quoting it, and he's saying, I knew that about you. That's why I didn't want to come here, because the people of Nineveh don't deserve a God like that. And so he comes up with all of these ways to limit or to restrict the steadfast love of God. God's not going to let that happen. Jonah would rather die than God forgive these people. And the message here, verse 3, Jonah goes on to say, Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. And God says, Jonah, do you have any reason at all to be angry? Think about this. 
God ends up giving him a, a, a tree. It's hot. So, so basically, I think God makes it really hot on Jonah, and then he gives him a nice shade tree, and Jonah's like, oh, that's nice, you know, relief from the heat, and then a worm comes, eats the tree, and it's hot and miserable again, and Jonah again says, God, take my life from me, and there's a, there's a point that God has as that whole illustration comes to a conclusion. Um, Jonah loved that tree, even though it was just a tree, even though it only existed for a day, even though he didn't even plant it, because it was of benefit to him for that short little time. He loved that tree more than he loved the people of Nineveh. And God is saying, this is a tree you didn't even plant. You had it for a day, and now it's gone, and you're angry? The people of Nineveh are people I did plant. The people of Nineveh are people that I loved. The people of Nineveh only exist because I created them. Am I not allowed to care for them? Am I not allowed to care for 120,000 of them and their animals? Am I not, and that, that's actually the question. The book, the book of Jonah ends with that question. And there's no answer given. I think very intentionally that's the answer we're supposed to, to fill in. Is God allowed to love these people? And if he is, are we also? Are we allowed to love our enemies? And the book of Jonah is an emphatic yes to that question. Anytime you find yourself trying to lower, restrict, or lessen the love of God, you're probably going to find yourself going in the wrong direction. Um, and the book of Jonah is, is a valuable reminder of that. Um, God loves you, and there's nothing that you have done that can keep him from loving you. And there's nothing that, uh, about who you are that can keep him from loving you. God is still a God of steadfast love, and he gives every one of us the opportunity to be forgiven, to be saved, and to be his. And we want to end this lesson by offering that opportunity now. Uh, if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian, would like to enter into the love of God, which is available for you, name Jesus as Lord of your life, have your sins washed away in baptism, and live for him, please let that be known. Come and sit on the front row, or meet with our elders in the library in the back while we stand and as we sing.